0: What a good declaration! As we uh, continue our study in First Corinthians, titled "Dethroned," overcoming the uh, or overthrowing the God of self. That's a great, great uh, reminder. If you're visiting with us, we're we're making our way through the book of First Corinthians, and we're in a new segment uh, in uh, chapters eight through ten and uh, we're learning a lot about how to see ourselves and see God and really get that whole uh, relationship. I want to begin this morning with a, a phrase that I'm sure most of you have heard at some point, um, but it, uh, it comes from Shakespeare's Hamlet. It's the, the infamous phrase, to be or not to be, right? That is the question. I wish I could summon like, Benedict Cumberbatch or Sean Connery or somebody to say that it would sound so much better but you know in that uh, that monologue that famous monologue there is this big dilemma that Hamlet is is considering and that is this whole idea of existence and he's thinking about is it is it harder or easier to live with the uncertainties of this life compared to the uncertainties that await us in the life beyond. So he wrestles with that dilemma, and we can certainly uh, sympathize with him. As we come to 1 Corinthians 9, there's another dilemma. And I, I think that Paul could have perhaps, uh, in a Hamletesque kind of way, not asked to be or not to be, but instead to do or not to do. A question of behavior. And the reality is, you and I, we make thousands of decisions every day, don't we? Some of them are very small, seemingly mundane. Some of them are really big and really important, aren't they? But, but nevertheless, all of our decisions, big or small, are taking us somewhere, We're making choices, and those choices have realities and consequences, and we end up where we end up in light of what we chose to do along the way. And so it's it's really important for us to think about how do we make decisions? How do we make choices throughout a day? Science, psychology, a lot of that tells us that we, we generally have two centers of decision-making in our heads. Uh, one is on the more logical, rational side, right? We, we consider facts and details and, and all that, and, and we make decisions. But honestly, more often than not, we're told we make our decisions emotionally, intuitively. We kind of go with our gut, I don't know how well that's working for us, but that's oftentimes how we make a lot of the decisions that we make. I wonder how aware you are of how you make decisions. Like, is that a conscious thing, or are you truly just reacting to most moments just from the gut? How intentional or impulsive are you when you're faced with the decisions? that you're making. Our world, uh, understandably, and we we would join in with this, we want favorable outcomes. We want things to, to turn out the way we want them to turn out. But oftentimes we live in the reality of if it feels good, do it. And if it doesn't feel good, don't. And that can can truly define how we make our decisions. Paul would say there's a better way, and he's going to model that for us in 1 Corinthians 9. Now, a little bit of backdrop uh, in chapter 8 so we can get some context going into what Paul is going to do in this chapter. Uh, The Corinthians were facing a dilemma. And if you'll remember last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message, but... um, the Corinthians were facing a dilemma around food that was sacrificed to idols and then served in the temple there in, uh, or in the temples uh, that were there in the city. And these Christians were now faced with, what do you do with food that was sacrificed to an idol? Should I eat it or should I not eat it? And there were some that understood rightly that just because food was sacrificed to an idol didn't mean there was something wrong with the food. Like, you could literally eat that food and it would have no impact upon you, spiritually speaking, because idols don't really exist. So that's, that's right thinking. But all they did was they made their decision around a question of legality. Is it okay, is it legal for me to eat that food, spiritually speaking? Is Am I going to offend God by eating this food? What they didn't take into consideration was everybody else around them. The people who might be in the temple who would know that food was sacrificed to idols and who might go, well, what's what's that guy or that gal doing? I I thought they were a Christian. Or uh, along with that, Paul speaks very specifically to people who would have spent their entire lives In idolatry, and they would have made a spiritual connection between food sacrificed to idols and them eating it. That was they they put that together, and then they become a Christian, and somebody says, "Hey, it's all cool. Don't worry about it. Let it go," and they just can't. Their their conscience is violated by eating that meal. That Paul referred to them as weak brothers and sisters. That's not a condescending term. It was just they, they couldn't quite get over that, that hump. And Paul was asking the Corinthians to be sympathetic to their weaker brothers and sisters, to make that a factor in their decision-making. So that's chapter 8. As we get into chapter 9, Paul gives a personal illustration to model how he makes decisions about those things that are dilemmas in everyday life. Again, big or small, he is answering the question to do or not to do and taking a lot of things into consideration as he goes into that. His uh, his dilemma that he introduces to, to, to illustrate is one around ministry compensation, I don't think they probably used that word back then, but, but basically, his practice was to go into a city, and he would work there, not only in ministry, but also as a tent maker. You can read about that in Acts 18, and his mindset was, I'm going to support myself so that I don't need to ask anyone that I minister to to provide support for me. This was a little bit of a problem in his day because it was commonly understood, both philosophically and religiously, if you're a leader, if you're a spokesperson, if you're a public figure in that respect, you'll be supported by the people that you're serving and leading. So he was, that was a departure. And the people in Corinth, they, they didn't quite understand that. And they actually began to question Paul around that practice. So for him, it's like, what a great illustration. I'm going to tell you why I refuse to exercise this right that I've been given as an apostle. But he takes his time to do it. That's where we're going to go this morning is we're going to look at how Paul explains his justification for doing what he does and how he arrived at the decision to make uh, those practices to begin with. He's going to do a couple of things here. First of all, he's going to validate his role as an apostle. There were some questions around even his authority to do what he was doing. Then he's going to give six rationales for his rights to be compensated. That may sound a little bit strange. If he sets aside the practice, why does he have to justify his right to receive those to begin with? You'll see as we go through. And then finally, he explains why he refuses to accept that. Support. All of this, keep this in mind, all of this is intended to model for the Corinthians how they ought to navigate their dilemma. So hopefully they see Paul and how he does this, and then they can go back to the question around food sacrifice to idols, and they can make a great decision that will affect far more than just themselves. So let's look at uh, chapter 9, verse 1, and we're going to see Paul establishing his role as an apostle. He begins with some questions. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul goes straight at the question around his authority as an apostle. And essentially, what, what was happening there is by refusing to exercise his rights to receive compensation, people began to question his credibility. They began to think, well, if you really were the leader that you think you are, then just like all of the other leaders, you would expect to be paid for it. So they're questioning him. So he's just saying, listen, I got a lot of history here in Corinth. He's, he's writing to the church. So these are people who have actually trusted in Christ. And he's the guy who led them there. he have been there for years. And he's just taking them back to say, who started this church to begin with? Who introduced you to the gospel? Who led you to salvation? Well, well, it was me. And so let's, let's kind of go back. I was the one who introduced you to the idea of freedom. I was the one who helped you understand this whole other way of living that was related to grace and truth and the mercy of God. So am I not an apostle? Well, of course I am. I'm the one who who founded this church to begin with. And the fact that you came to Christ and the fact that we have seen evidence of the Spirit in this place, that is testimony to my identity as an apostle. You, the existence of this church, that is the seal or the verification of my role as an apostle of God. So he establishes that and then continues on in verse three to say, this is my defense to those who would examine me. So there are some who are evaluating Paul and he begins to ask some more questions. Do we, those in the position that I'm in, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, Paul does something very interesting here. Notice he uses one word three times, the word right. And uh, that could also be translated freedom. And what he's doing here is he's using the very same basis that the Corinthians used for their justification to eat food sacrificed to idols. It was all about their rights. My gosh, i got a right to eat this food. So he's saying, well, you know what? I've got a right to do a few things as an apostle. I've got a right to come here, do ministry, and eat and drink at the expense of the church. He's establishing. That's a common practice, and I as an apostle have a right to do that. I have a right to marry. We we saw that earlier in uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. But what that also meant, again, with this idea of compensation, it meant that if I bring my spouse along with me, that the church has some responsibility to to care for my spouse as well, not just me. And then lastly, apparently he had a right, and Barnabas as well, to to focus exclusively on ministry in the church and in the community. And the only way that he would be able to do that is if the church were to pay his way. He's saying, as an apostle of God, as the founder of this church, I have the right or the freedom to do all of that. And they would have immediately understood, though they may not have agreed. So then he transitions into some some justification or rationale for why he would think the way that he's thinking. He actually gives six justifications for his right to receive. He appeals to natural law, Old Testament law, community reciprocity, New Testament precedence, Old Testament priesthood, and the teaching of Jesus. You might call this an argument by avalanche. <laughs> he is going to make sure that they got it clear that he has all of the rights he claims to have. Let's just work through these one at a time. First of all, natural law, beginning in verse 7. He asks the question, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Answer, none. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? That would be strange, wouldn't it? That you plant the garden, you plant the field, and yet you take nothing from that work that you've done. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So Paul appeals to three very, very familiar uh, illustrations in their community the soldier, the farmer, and the shepherd. And he's saying, hey, let's just think about this just like, this is just common sense. These are people that they have jobs, they do their work, and every single one of them benefit from the work that they're doing. And nobody ever questions it. In fact, if they didn't benefit, that would seem really strange. So at first he's kind of saying, so why is my role as an apostle somehow put in a complete other category. If you're questioning my rights to benefit from the work that I do, well, well why me and not them? So he's just appealing to common sense. That's his argument from natural law. But he, then he goes into Old Testament law, begins to say this isn't just a, a human idea, This is a God idea. Look at verse eight. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Like, Did he put that law into place just to take care of the oxen? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So Paul points back to Deuteronomy 25.4. That's where that statement about you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. That, he points back to that. That was an actual law that was given to Israel. And the practice was oxen would tread out grain that was brought in from the field and of course you could muzzle the ox so that it couldn't eat what was all around it like naturally right the ox is going to look at that got some grain on the ground here I'm kind of hungry you could put a muzzle on it and it couldn't eat any of the grain but the idea was why would you do that it, it's not like you're going to lose a whole lot of grain and you're probably going to keep the ox uh, full and strong so it can do its work. See how that works? So, but he's saying God didn't do that for the sake of the ox. <laughs> he did that to give us a picture of how we should function. And we show that uh, again in uh, 1 Timothy 5 Paul writes to 1 Timothy, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, and he quotes again Deuteronomy 25, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and then explains. For the laborer deserves his wages. So we've got a a natural law that everyone would agree to. And then he establishes an Old Testament law that God prescribed, not man. And then he moves on to community reciprocity. And this is this idea that the people of God live in community with one another and they benefit mutually from what everybody brings to the table. Verse 11 If we, Paul says, if we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And here he's arguing from greater to lesser, not not simply to compare, but just to say again, he's appealing to their rational side. If we've come and we have introduced you to eternal spiritual truths... That don't just change your circumstances in a moment, but those will change your life for all of eternity. If we have brought that to you, if that's what we've contributed to the community, is it too much to ask that you might share with us materially, like provide something to eat, (laughs) perhaps a place to stay, or maybe a little spending money, like doesn't that make sense if we're living in community with one another? You see how just rational he's trying to be here? And I, I would assume that they would go, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's kind of how we do things when we live in community with one another. He's stretching them to, to avoid that sacred, secular split. He's saying all of us are bringing something into this community for its good, But but that's a great consideration when we're thinking about this idea of rights or freedom. Then he moves on in verse 12 to leadership precedence. He says, if others share this rightful claim for that community reciprocity, if they share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? See, the Corinthians were already practicing this provision with other leaders in the church, even leaders in other parts of of that region. So he's thinking, again, I'm an apostle, I'm a founder of this church, I am investing in ministry here, so seems like I would have a right to expect that you would support me in the way that I'm talking about. Then in 13, he goes to the Old Testament priesthood. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. So again, he's saying this isn't just a a New Testament or a new covenant thing. But this has actually always been the way ministry has worked within the community of God's people. So God set aside a group of people who would serve as priests in the temple. And they didn't have a side job. They were there all the time. That's all that they did for the good of the community. And they were instructed by God... To live off of the sacrifices that people made within the temple worship regimen. So it is a little bit ironic that, remember, he's confronting how the Corinthians thought about food sacrificed to idols, and yet priests were commanded to live off of food sacrificed not to idols, but to the one true God. But they were in a position of dependence. Upon the community, and the community was reminded by God in that command that they had that responsibility. That if they weren't to do what they were supposed to do, the priests would uh, would be in trouble. So, natural law, Old Testament law, community practices, leadership precedents, Old Testament priesthood, and then the haymaker. Teaching of Jesus. If all else fails, what did Jesus say? That will will make it uh, sure. Verse 14: In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living. By the gospel. Now, let me make a quick distinction here because we talk a lot about the fact that all of us, from a New Testament perspective, we're called a kingdom of priests. So that's something that all of us do, right? And all of us are called to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So there's there's no exceptions. This doesn't just apply to some of us in terms of our overarching call the Great Commission, but Paul is specifically focusing in on vocational ministry. He's saying there are some of us who are called to minister exclusively to either the body of Christ in a shepherding kind of role or the community at large in an evangelistic kind of role, and those who are fully devoted to that without any other source of income They need to be supported by the church. Now, let me also say, because Friday we just had this amazing conference here about work as worship. And this room had a bunch of folks who do ministry in the marketplace. And we talked about what a beautiful thing that is when someone sees their work not just as a way of getting a paycheck, but as a place of influence. And so... I want to esteem that and affirm that. But there is a relationship between that role in the body and then this ministerial role in the body. So those whose primary work is that of ministry, equipping, and leadership are eligible to be compensated through that ministry. That's the the foundation of what Jesus was talking about. When he sent out his disciples, Luke 9 and Luke 10, first the 12 and then the 72, he required them, wherever they would go, to depend only upon the provisions that God would make through his people in that community, in that location. So he was modeling that dependence. Jesus himself was supported uh, in ministry. Luke 8, you can jot that down. So there was just this basic assumption that those who were responsible for ministry vocationally in the church, they would be supported. Galatians 6.6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I want to pause for a second. And at the risk of sounding very self-serving because this is not the primary emphasis of the passage so I want to acknowledge that but I I sort of wish I could be a visiting pastor today and that you didn't know me and then I could come in here and say let me tell you something I know your staff I work around them all the time and they love what they do They love getting to serve you and serving this church and advancing the mission. And and all I want you to know today is that every bit of support that you give to this church on their behalf, it's worth every dime. They are glad. I promise you they didn't come here for the money. But they are glad to spend every day in this place and out in the community advancing the mission and making sure that you're equipped to play your part in the mission everywhere you go so that's my little my little uh, side uh, side conversation there but I want to encourage you that sometimes we can forget all that's going on for a church to be a church and do what it does and. I just want you to know that the staff, man, they are doing a great, great job. And uh, and they love doing it. So, all right. So Paul has established that he is an apostle. Paul has established that he has a right to the support of the church, and then he throws them a complete curveball. He's like, I got a right to this, but guess what? I'm gonna decline. I don't want you to pay for anything. I'm going to take complete responsibility for my expenses. And he's going to explain why. Go back up to the last half of verse 12. He says, Nevertheless, though I have a right to all this, I have not made use of this right, but endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I'm not trying to talk you into something. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. We'll talk about that boasting in just a minute. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me. If I do not preach the gospel. So we're starting to see that there's a whole lot more at stake. There's a whole lot more going on in Paul's mind as he's making this decision about whether or not to exercise his right as an apostle. He's taking a whole lot more into consideration than just the fact that he has the right to begin with, it's far more than just a question of legality. Is it sinful or not? That's a big question. And if you're simply looking into your Bible to say, is there a command against it or for it, and that's where you stop, then you've stopped way too early. I want to give you a, a, a little bit of a filter or a framework for making decisions, and I think this is biblically based, but I think this will help you think bigger than just is it legal. Four questions that help answer the question to do or not to do. Here's the first one. Is it moral? And this is the question that the Corinthians were asking. This is the question that Paul would have certainly asked. But basically, is it biblically and theologically allowed? You do have to ask that question and answer it. If there's an obvious command against something, then the answer is don't do it. And you can, you can really stop there. But what about all of those things that are kind of gray? What about those things that may or may not be okay? There's not a, a verse specifically speaking to that issue. What do I do with that? Well, there's three more questions that we need to ask. Secondly, is it wise? Is it wise? Wisdom does a lot of things, but it certainly is protective. And so when I think about the question of wisdom, if I ask, is it wise, what I'm saying is, is what I'm considering doing, is it creating unnecessary vulnerability on my part or anybody else's? I mean, life is chaotic and, and uh, uncertain and all that anyway, so wisdom, I'm trying to... to proceed wisely I'm trying to eliminate vulnerability where I can I can't eliminate all of it but I can eliminate some of it so I wanna ask first of all is it moral and then secondly is it wise I don't wanna make myself unnecessarily vulnerable then I need to ask the question is it considerate so now I'm actually getting outside of myself and I'm actually thinking about the people around me you could also say is Is what I'm considering doing loving? Although that feels gigantic. You could say is is something loving. Well, we could talk about that for days. But consideration, that that feels to me a little more personal. It, It feels like I would be wondering, regardless of how something might impact me, that I really care about how something might impact you. Would it bless you would it encourage you? Would it strengthen you? Or would it do just the opposite? I think that's a question we have to ask if we're facing a dilemma of whether or not to do something, especially those things that aren't explicitly spoken to in the Scripture. So is it moral? Is it wise? Is it considerate? And then lastly, is it strategic? Well, strategic for what? What? strategic for the mission of God. That's our deal, man. That's why we're here. We are here to advance God's redemptive mission until we take our last breath and go to be with him or he returns. And so everything that we do has to be put into a context of, does this advance the mission? Now, there are some things like, what shirt should I wear today? Or where should we go to eat? That's not necessarily going to fit into this, right? But I'm talking about those decisions where it really is a a lifestyle decision. That that there are important things on the line. And in that sense, I want to ask the question, is what I'm doing missionally beneficial? Does it advance the mission? I think for Paul, he would have said this idea of compensation for ministry. Obviously, there were others who did it, so it isn't just a black and white issue, but for him, this is specifically for him in his context, I think he would have said, it is morally allowed. He just made a huge case for why he has a right to do this. It's potentially unwise due to perceived associations that others might make with him and and charlatans in his community. It's potentially harmful to believers and unbelievers through a perceived conflict of interest. Someone might have assumed that his presentation of the gospel came with strings attached. He felt like that was an unnecessary vulnerability. I think he would have said it's potentially unstrategic due to the perceived distortion of the gospel. He's not saying that dogmatically, but for him and his conscience, he said, I think it's better off that I decline to receive what is rightfully mine from these people that I serve. You See how he arrived at that? What's important is He's really not talking about ministry compensation. He's really getting at why do you do what you do? And the the people in Corinth, when they talked about their dilemma around food sacrifice to idols, they simply justified that it's legal and I want it, so I'll do it. And just let the chips fall where they may. If I got a weak brother who just doesn't have a good understanding of the gospel, too bad for them. Hopefully they'll figure that out someday and then they can be like me. You see how hard that sounds, how calloused that is, how contrary to the law of love that is? So Paul is confronting them And it's interesting that he talks about his reward in verse 17. He says, If I do this of my own will, if I preach the gospel, which I feel compelled to do, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. So Paul gets knocked off a donkey, and he's told that you are going to be my servant. You are going to reach the world with the gospel, so he's just given an assignment. Je- Jesus didn't ask for Paul's opinion. He didn't say, hey, I've got a, a possibility for you here. Would you like to, to do it? It's like, no, this is what you're going to do. So Paul just says, I'm, I, ju- I have a job and I'm going to do it. So what is my reward? What reward do I get? He said that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul's reward, think about this, what reward do you have in your obedience? His reward was in the opportunity to demonstrate his devotion through sacrifice. He loved being able to show and tell his gratitude for the gospel through the sacrifices that he made. So in other words, it was like, I have a right to this compensation, but I'm I'm going to decline it, and that's going to give me an opportunity to explain to you why I declined it. And it's because I am so sufficiently provided for in my calling and in the God who called me to begin with. 1 Corinthians 4, so we, we covered this a while back, But listen to how he did this. This is his reward. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now... How can he celebrate that? How can that be a reward? Write down Acts 20, 24. This is Paul's heart as he goes about doing what he's doing. He said, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I think for the people in Corinth, they had lost sight of their primary purpose for living and the opportunity that they had to promote the gospel. And that their focus had dropped down to temporary things. And so Paul is lifting their vision here. To say, when you're making your choices day in and day out, please consider more than just what you want and whether or not it's legal. But consider the impact that it might have on the people around you, on the church that you're a part of, on the city you're trying to reach, on the mission that you're trying to fulfill. If we're all asking that question... First of all, I think we make great decisions. But secondly, I think we make room for God to do what only God can do. We get to see him show up in the midst of that. So I wanna give you an opportunity to uh, think for a moment about how you make decisions. You might even think about some decisions that you've recently made. And maybe there's a little bit of a of an ouch there, that's okay. T- today's a new day, we get to go forward, we get to think, I, how do I wanna live tomorrow? How am I gonna make decisions tomorrow? Invite the Holy Spirit to bring something to mind. Heard a lot of information today, but, but is there one thing that you can take away today that um, gives you better clarity about how you're gonna walk with Christ tomorrow? Take a moment, prayerfully consider that as your so what application for today. Father in heaven, when we pause to think about all the decisions that we make every day, uh, it can be overwhelming. And so we come to you and we ask for you to help us. Uh, We thank you for your word that is true. We thank you for your spirit that helps us understand your word. And we thank you for this community around us so that we don't have to to walk through life alone just trusting in our own understanding. So help us make great choices, certainly for our good, but more importantly for the glory of God and the advancement of your mission until you return. Thank you, Father, for providing all that we need to do what you've called us to do. In Christ's name. All right. Well, uh, man, good stuff. This is challenging to, uh, to deal with the self, right? Uh, it's, it's just real simple, real easy. We don't have to be...